I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet... There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. Uh, Today's guest is a really interesting one for me. It's Dr. Nora Volkow, who has been the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the U.S. government since 2003. That's under four different presidential administrations. So it's been a remarkably long run overseeing the lead agency, which provides the majority of funding for drug research, not just in the U.S., but really the majority all around the world. Those of you who know me, you'll know I've been highly critical of NIDA, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, and Dr. Volk over the years, in part because I think they've so overemphasized uh, trying to establish that addiction is a brain disease and, and putting a lot of research into the neuroscience and brain imaging and all of that. And I personally think that they should be spending dramatically more money on things like ethnographic studies and studying things like the ways in which people control their drug use and more research on the benefits of drugs. Now, you should also be aware 
that a few years ago, NIDA received some dedicated funding from Congress specifically um, to address issues involving the drug overdose epidemic. And those of you who have been listening carefully know that just a few episodes ago, in episode five, we had Professor Dan Cicerone talking about uh, what's going on with the overdose epidemic. Why did almost 100,000 people die last year? Uh, and so I started off the interview really by pressing uh, Dr. Volkow on that question. Um, and I will admit, I was frustrated by some of her answers. She kept saying we need more research on this, more research on that. You know, and of course, Knight has been spending more money than anybody in the world on doing research. But I'll tell you, I was pleasantly surprised that she agreed to be a guest on Psychoactive. Nora grew up in Mexico City. Uh, has a fascinating family history that we'll get into early in the episode. She was an outstanding medical student, became a psychiatrist, held all sorts of influential positions, became a real leader in the U.S. and around the world trying to understand addiction by looking at the brain through neuroimaging and brain scans, and has had really quite a remarkable run. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Nora Volkow. Nora, thank you so much for joining me today on Psychoactive. Thanks for having me. And listen, my job here, right, I mean, here I've led until recently the leading Drug Policy Reform Institute, which was intensely critical of many government policies and oftentimes of NIDA's work and priorities. But it's my job both to be the gracious host and also to press you on a lot of questions which have been on my mind that I'm sure on the minds of others. But let me just start off on a little bit of a personal thing, which is you have this remarkably interesting background, familial background, uh, you know, growing up in Mexico, but growing up in the house in which your great-grandfather, the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky, was murdered by Stalin's agents. And yet there's another part of your family history involving, I think, your grandfather and others, which, I, as I understand it, first sensitized you and made you start thinking about the issues of drugs and addiction and what you might do to address that. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little more about that. Yes, and, and indeed, my, my story comes from um, two different countries. I, uh, my father came from Russia, and his grandfather was um, escaping from Stalin, and ultimately the only place that gave asylum to his family was, was Mexico, whereas my mother was born in Spain, and uh, there was a civil war, and again, Mexico was the place that gave political asylum to all of those refugees that were escaping Franco. So I always like to say that I was born of the two wars, of the last century, Russian Revolution and the Civil War. And so that's, that's how I came to be born in Mexico. What you were saying as in, in terms of what led me to think about addiction, and indeed, um, the father of my mother, unbeknownst to me as, as a child, I had never met him because he was in Spain and I was in Mexico, had a history of alcoholism. And when I was approximately probably six years of age, uh, he committed suicide because he couldn't control the, the strong urge to, to drink and had relapsed. So I did not find this until later when I was already in medical school. But in the meantime, my favorite uncle of all times, uh, my mother's uh, older brother, uh, also had a problem with alcohol. And to me, it was very uh, contrasting to see the component about what an extraordinary individual he was, how generous, 
how smart, how um, charismatic on the one hand, and yet uh, when he was drinking, his personality changed so much. And, and I was also intrigued about the family dynamics because nobody wanted to speak about it. It was like this gigantic secret. It gave me that insight that, um, I mean, people are not bad because they have a problem of addiction. They just have a problem that is more powerful that they can control, and it's not that they are doing this voluntarily. So as I went to medical school, I was also appalled at the way that our doctors were treating addiction. They were ignoring it, actually uh, refusing sometimes to give treatment to someone that have a history of addiction because they thought that they were uh, doing this to themselves and whatever happened to them, they deserved it. And I saw this even as I went uh, after in my residency training in psychiatry, uh, where we would admit patients that have um, depression with an alcohol use disorder. And I would inquire to the attendings, how do we address the alcohol use disorder? And says, do not worry about it treat that depression, and once the person leaves the hospital, then they will deal with their alcohol use disorder. And later on, as I became an attending, directly forbidden to admit patients with um, an addiction into the inpatient unit of the hospital because they were patients that misbehave, under quote. So to me, all of these experiences were actually activating my amygdalas, which are the centers of emotions of the brain, because it seemed completely counterfactual with what we knew uh, then on the pharmacology and the neuroscience of the brain. And we knew that we could make animals actually get compulsive in administering a drug to the expense that they would stop eating or drinking and they actually jeopardize their life. And so they are very in wire, wire um, biological circuits that make us vulnerable to these drugs. And in some people, uh, to that complete loss of control. So that's ultimately what led me to try to provide knowledge that could ilu illuminate further, help, help us understand what happens in the brain of people that lose control with the idea that hopefully science will serve to change policies and, and reduce the stigma and basically change the notion of criminalizing people to that of treating and helping people and preventing them from relapsing. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, um, if I look at what NIDA's priorities have been, and I think it was true under, to some extent, your predecessor, Alan Leshner, as well. But for you, really, it feels like the major thrust of the agency really has been on the brain research, right? On the neuroimaging and that. The biggest share of the resources have gone there. And what I have I've always felt has been a sort of inadequate attention to funding the sort of ethnographic work, the deep analysis into drug-using communities and drug cultures into truly understanding what's going on there, especially when we're dealing with the overdose issue and the opioid issue. I mean, I, I know you fund some stuff in that area, but it seems like it's relatively modest, very modest, compared to the work that's being done in the newer imaging and the brain stuff. And I mean, what's the rationale for that? Is that you believe that the brain work is going to lead to the big breakthrough? I mean, here we're focusing on the opioid epidemic, right, which is now what well, we're approaching 100,000 people dying of overdose and all sorts of other ills associated with this. Why such a focus on that? Well, I mean, obviously, we are very much interested on basic neuroscience to help us understand how it affects the brain. But we invest much more money on research that relates to the, those very important components that you discussed, the issue 
of how socioeconomic factors, cultural factors, uh, influence uh, the vulnerability of resilience uh, for drug taking. And so our dollar amount spent in research that relates, for example, to prevention services, implementation, epidemiology, in fact, is greater than what we spend in basic neuroscience. We have this need in humans of polarizing things into this or that. And ultimately, the reality is that our social systems are a product of our brains interacting with one another, and our brains are a product of our circumstances. So the challenge in science is how do we integrate these fields? For example, a very important study we have been doing since 2016 is a developmental study of children as they transition into adulthood. And yes, we're studying their brains, but yes, we're doing a very in-depth phenotypic characterization of their social environment. And as a result of this longitudinal study, mm -hmm. large longitudinal study, researchers have been able to document some extremely powerful relationships between these adverse social environments and uh, how the brain develops. And also important insights on how very early on children are mistreated uh, if they come from certain racial backgrounds. And we are about to start a similar study initiating uh, early in infancy to follow it up. And it will give us a much better understanding about how our environment influences the brain. Well, Bernard, what I'm really getting at, though, is I remember back in the 70s and 80s, there was this incredible richness of ethnographic studies going on and, and famous ethnographers, Michael Agar and others, and a whole cohort who were really doing in-depth studies. And now I look at the questions that emerge around, say, fentanyl and the opioids, the question about how are consumers responding? When people know that fentanyl's out on the street, do they run forward or run away for it? What sorts of precautions are they taking vis-a-vis -vis their own use? To what extent are the people who are selling these drugs, the lowest level retail sellers, to what extent do they know what's in their drugs? Are they exercising any sort of harm reduction measures vis-a-vis -vis their own consumers, right? To what extent are these drugs all being mixed? Why is fentanyl landing up in the stimulant supply with cocaine and methamphetamine? And there's these host of questions, and it seems to me that essentially nobody has the answers. And when I talk to, you know, the sociologists, the ethnographers, the others who are getting funded, they're saying, Ethan, you're right, those are really important questions, but the truth of it is it, there's only a handful of us really getting this abundance of, of funding to do this stuff. Isn't it part of the job of NIDA to be digging deeply into what's actually going on in these active markets right now, finding these things out and trying to dig into what sorts of interventions you can do with active drug users and even low-level sellers in order to reduce the harms that are resulting from fentanyl and these other opioids? being out on the street? Absolutely. We have a responsibility to bring a light that can help address these very challenging times. And what I can tell you, I mean, and this is uh, in terms, I mean, one of the main drivers about why we have synthetic opioids now widespread throughout the United States is because the profits for the dealers and those that are generating these drugs are much greater than they are for something like heroin or many of the other drugs that require cultivation. So one of the reasons why you see so many drugs being laced with fentanyl is that the dealers are going to be making much more money. And we do have ethnographic reports that actually go and speak with people on the streets. And for example, in Baltimore, young heroin users may be in some instances seeking out fentanyl, but the older ones are actually afraid of it, but they cannot afford to buy pure heroin because it's more expensive. 
Also, many instances, it is very difficult to get pure heroin, even if you had the money to pay for it. So it is a reality that, unfortunately, the enormous amount of money that can be made by selling fentanyl is driving the market. And so, I mean, in terms of scientific questions, is how do we counteract that negative effects and the strong, aggressive uh, distribution of fentanyl and its contamination of the other drugs. That's unfortunately at, at an essence part of the enormous challenges that we have. But we need to understand also the diversity of the markets. And two, to me, one of the key important issues for addressing, for example, the opioid crisis is to have more timely data, just like, like we had with COVID, right? You see, immediately you know when you're starting to have the new variants. We don't have that for fentanyl. So if I get data, it's at least six months later of overdose mortality across different areas of the country. And by then, many people have died. And the technologies out there that would enable us to detect early on when we see in a community the emergence of these very uh, lethal drugs. I know my own. I just had to tell you my own sense is that if you were to fund an army of ethnographers going out there doing snowball research, paying drug users to connect with other drug researchers, finding out what they're doing around these new drugs emerging, what sorts of precautions they're doing, and even funding studies that try to enlist drug sellers, whether they're currently incarcerated or whether they're still operating in the community, to find out. Look, drug sellers don't want dead customers. It's bad for business, right? Or even trying to find out. What, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer. Why is it that cocaine and methamphetamine are being cut now with fentanyl? I mean, are they trying to make some form of new speedball or is it just out of ignorance on the part of retail sellers? Uh, are, do customers actually want that? I mean, what do we know about that right now? What we know is that uh, many of the deaths associated with stimulants are unbeknownst to the person that they were getting actually a stimulant that was contaminated with fentanyl. In some instances, yes. As you know, their speedballing was the way that people used to uh, want to get high. Uh, you don't have just one reason why people may be combining, but an, a very important contribution is uh, people not knowing that they are getting fentanyl, being stimulant users, having no tolerance for opioids, and therefore that drug combination is particularly mm -hmm. lethal. And yes, I mean, I, I think that one of the issues that you need to consider in terms of how we have to make decisions. Absolutely, we need to understand the problem in better ways, in more efficient ways. But we also need to develop tools that will allow us to address it. So it's not just that we are actually uh, have the resources just to do uh, epidemiology and ethnography research. We need to help develop medications. We need to develop models that will ensure that individuals that need care will be given care. We need to actually um, develop models for prevention of relapses, for prevention into drug taking. It's not just one thing that we can allocate all of our resources. Mm -hmm. It is crucial that we understand the nature of the problem. And it's also crucial in that respect that we partner with other agencies so that we maximize the resources and we can achieve more. Mm -hmm. And you're speaking about something that is very, very intriguing, and it's an area that has been not thought much at, and, and so I'm curious that you asked me about it, which is the notion about the dealers. How do the dealers end up dealing with these very dangerous drugs? 
And that is, is something that um, we don't have research into that area. It would be a great thing to solicit proposals for because, quite frankly, whether or not the lowest level retail suppliers um, actually know what's in their drugs and what precautions they take and what's going on in that dynamic would be fantastically valuable given the amount of accidental overdose that's happening right now. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. You know, I saw recently that you wrote a piece in which you said you supported drug decriminalization. And I know you've never been a fan of the war on drugs, but here you've been operating in a political context in which punitive prohibitionist policies, mass arrests, you know, the heavily racial biases that go with all of that has been pervasive. Now, one of the other criticisms has been, you know, they're always looking for the, what's wrong with drugs. But what about what's wrong with drug policy? Policies. I'm going to take an example. I'll see you write an article about all the harmful consequences of marijuana, right? And we can agree that one has to identify the harmful consequences of marijuana. But there's nothing coming out of NIDA that I'm aware of that's looking at the harmful consequences of marijuana arrest or marijuana-related loss of employment, or even from a health context. When you put somebody in jail for marijuana or arrest them or strip them of the job, that has consequences for their broader life. It also can be traumatic and cause things that might impact their brains in ways like that. So so what has been the resistance to this? Isn't that important? I mean, and if not you, who? Yeah, no, and it's crucial. And I basically, from day one, I've been against criminalization of people that because they have a problem with substance use disorders. I've been very, very vocal 
we funded research to show how negative the consequences are of imprisonment into the brain. It actually increases the risk of uh, drug taking and it basically also increases right now, even more than before when it was known, the risk for overdosing and dying. Uh, a very important project that we have been doing now for year years and now we've actually expanded because we got extra resources is with a criminal justice setting, exactly to provide alternative models that will ensure that people, if for whatever reason, first of all, end up in jail or prison, that they get treatment and that they get support, and also to determine how one can intervene to avoid that incarceration. We have funded research showing that, as you mentioned, when you have a relative, a father, a mother that ends up in jail or prison, the risk of the child to have a substance use disorder is much greater. And that is known and no one is questioning it. So we've been trying to disseminate this information. And when I am, I have to actually speak in Congress or the Senate, I bring up this issue because I feel very, very strongly. And in fact, one of the reasons why I took this position was because I say we can develop the science in such a way as that that policy changes. I've also been openly active uh, criticizing the policy of incarcerating for crack versus cocaine, uh, which made absolutely no sense. And there's record on those things. The issue uh, comes about, I mean, that there are structural systems in such a way that promote certain behaviors and science is not enough to change those policies. So, so my question that I always say is, what is it that science can uncover to change policies? that would get rid of these structural characteristics that are leading to these inequalities. And we are mm -hmm. very much interested, for example, in policies. We fund several researchers to identify policies uh, across the states as on how they are legalizing marijuana. Because as you look through the states, for example, you see that um, the adverse effects of, of marijuana use are much worse in some states, whereas other states that have legalized actually have better outcomes. So understanding what policies basically protect from negative effects and may actually lead to better right. outcomes is crucial. And we're funding it. So yes, the answer is yes. Yeah. There's one issue, I think, going back a number of years ago, where if I pat myself on the back, I think I was more right than you were, which is people were saying, if you're going to legalize marijuana, you're going to see this explosion in adolescent use of marijuana and problematic use. And I think you were part of that group saying that. And what hit me at the time, you know, this is back six, seven years ago, was that adolescents have, for 50 years, Years, always had the best access to marijuana, right? Even as marijuana use among adolescents has gone up and down in the last 50 years, the surveys that ask about access consistently show 80% of high school seniors saying they have easy access. So my sense was that marijuana use among adolescents was not going to change much as a result for the simple reason that access was already so abundant, but that where you were going to see the jump was going to be among people our age and a little older and a little younger, people using it because they preferred it to alcohol or pharmaceuticals and in point of fact, it looks like there's been a tripling or quadrupling of marijuana use among people, you know, our age or older, um, whereas the adolescents have stayed relatively constant. And mind you, I wouldn't be surprised if it jumps in the future. Part of the other research, I think, suggests that use of drugs oftentimes goes up and down independent of what the policy is. There's a whole range of other variables out there. And I guess where my question now comes to you is when you write a piece about the harms of marijuana, why not write a piece about 
the benefits? What about a piece about the controlled use? What about one piece that looks at it all? You know, many people were so frustrated that NIDA did not support the medical marijuana research. It took forever and ever and ever. Or you look at the fact that the vast majority of people use marijuana don't really have a problem. It is clearly problematic and even addictive for some, and we have to be aware of that. But why not have a more holistic, comprehensive approach to, let's just take the drug marijuana as one example? Yeah, no, and I think that one of the reasons why is because the, the data on the benefits from marijuana is very limited, and it is very limited because there is limited research. And so one of the things that I have been involved now for more than a decade, and I must say that I have been unsuccessful, is to try to change the policies that make it so very difficult for researchers to have marijuana. So marijuana is a schedule one drug. So if you as a researcher want to do work with marijuana, you have to get a DEA license and get approval from the FDA. And that takes at least one year. And then if you change your protocol, you have to go through the process again. So it's extraordinary cumbersome. And as a result of that, researchers don't want to get into the field. That's one. Second, we are also mandated, actually this is not my choice, we are mandated to provide the uh, marijuana for research purposes. And so we contract these to a farm in Mississippi that produces the marijuana. But this system is actually not ideal because when you are testing a marijuana, say, for example, you're interested on its potential value for PTSD or for cancer, for whatever you want, you are going to be working with a particular plant. And it's unlikely that we have such a plant. So it has hindered research. And I think it was last week that finally the government has identified two other producers that can provide marijuana. And if that happens, of course, that will facilitate the research into the medical use of cannabis. I also yeah. want to comment <laughs> that NIDA does fund research on medical marijuana, but we limited it to potential beneficial effect for treatment of addiction for treatment of pain, and for treatment improving outcomes on individuals that may have HIV. So we limit it to these conditions because otherwise all of our money would go into research on medical properties of marijuana for Alzheimer's, for cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease, for inflammation. We are hoping that the other institutes will take uh, those projects that pertains to the diseases that they are working on. And you were right. I was expecting that use of marijuana among adolescents would go up. And overall, it hasn't. But what we are starting to see, which is, again, important to keep an eye on, is that regular use of marijuana appears to be going up among adolescents. And that's, that's of course, of concern. Yeah. Nora, you know, I so much share your concern that with legalization, that marijuana almost becoming overly normalized in the way that people begin to sort of lose its specialness and use it in ways that are problematic. So we share some overlap there. But, you know, you mentioned the Schedule 1 thing. Uh, you know, there were lawsuits some years ago to try to get the DEA to reschedule marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, and another lawsuit to, regarding MDMA. And in both cases, the DEA's administrative law judge ruled that, in fact, based on the evidence, it should be rescheduled. But under U.S. law, the head of the DEA has the legal power to dismiss the recommendation by his administrative law judge and just keep it where it is. Now, I'm curious, I mean, do you think it's appropriate for a police agency like DEA to be in control of that? Shouldn't it instead be National Institute of Health or maybe even better, an independent body like Institute of Medicine at the National Academies of Science? 
Well, I mean, I think that in, in my view is not what I think. I mean, it's the way that this system is organized. What I can tell you is I very specifically, explicitly describe this as a problem in the meetings that I have at the United Nations to state that uh, the scheduling has made it hard to do research, which is impeding, again, investigations that relate to the potential medical utility of cannabinoids that are in marijuana. So I represent the science, and there are other people that make the rules about regulations, and, and that's what the missions of the agencies are. So, Yeah, no, I hear you, but you know, I was thinking about this. There is only one other person I can think of who has headed a drug-related agency in the federal government for longer than you, right? You're the longest at NIDA, you're the longest at DEA. The only one I can think of, and it's not putting you in, I don't want to put you in bad company here, but it would be Harry Anslinger, right? The guy who ran the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for like 32 years or something like that. But you are in a position of tremendous influence by virtue of your tenure. I have to ask you this question, and as frankly as you can answer it, I'd be curious. You came in under President Bush in 2003 when the drug czar, John Walters, was a fanatical anti-drug guy. I saw some of your testimony in front of that congressman, Mark Souter. I mean, real drug war nutcases. And I admired the fact that you were telling him what the evidence was on needle exchange. And then you go under Obama and things open up, especially in the second term. And then you're dealing with uh, Trump and the first head of health and human services, your boss, I guess, twice removed, who like doesn't know anything ass from his elbow about methadone. And now under Biden, where things are opening up somewhat, can you say anything, frankly, about what it's like to deal with that political context, especially at the federal level? Well, I've always spoken up and I've said it very specifically. Uh, We are an agency of science and we need to be allowed to do science and let the evidence speak. The moment that our actions become politicized, we lose any credibility. Obviously, in some instances, it may be you just have to be um, a little bit more diplomatic on the way that you present these things. But I do believe that that is our job. That's our responsibility. We need to bring the science that can help guide decisions, because if we don't do it, then we shouldn't be in these positions. Well, okay. So let me repeat to you something I've been saying since the 90s. And, and, you know, please don't take offense at it, but it was kind of my broader perspective on this thing. And I don't think it's as true today as it was then, but I still think there's truth to it. I would say that trying to do innovative drug abuse research in the United States is a little like trying to do innovative social science research in the old Soviet Union. That curious researchers quickly learn that there are certain questions the authorities don't want to have asked and certain answers they don't want to have given. And then if you persist in asking the wrong questions or giving the wrong answers, well, you're less likely to have your grants funded. You're less likely to be asked to serve on grant review committees. You're more likely to have your publications or things sent to hostile reviewers. And what happens then is that many researchers, especially in the hard scientists, basically develop, you know, political blinders. And that over time, those political blinders become intellectual blinders, where they even forget to really ask some of the most interesting questions that might happen. And so then I ask people in the U.S., what does it feel like? And they'll say, well, you know, Ethan, I'd say we were constantly advised by NIDA grant officers until maybe around Obama's second term not to use the phrase harm reduction. 
in our grant proposals. Um, we are even now don't use the words controlled drug use in a grant proposal, or it's just going to say, forget it. If I ask, why isn't NIDA funding research on the prescribing of pharmaceutical heroin the way the Europeans are, or safe injection sites, or a whole range of other things? And there don't seem to be any good scientific reasons for not funding that stuff. It seems to be about a political context in which funding for this stuff is politically disapproved. And that even if the people in your agency or yourself approve of it, there's a realization that members of Congress, you know, could get furious for funding things like this. So what's your frankest answer to all of that? My frank answer to this is absolutely. There were certain terms that when you have it in the grant, we would be questioned about why we were funding science on such and such a subject matter. So my perspective was uh, you cannot go into an argument like that openly when the arguments are so irrational. So you just change the terminologies used. So you don't use harm reduction, use other mm -hmm. terms. I mean, again, we need to have flexibility in our brains to accomplish what is it that we want to accomplish. We want science that can bring up actions that can improve. It's not just because it is academically interesting. So if I can keep on funding things without having them come in and, and removing, asking us to cut the funding by changing that terminology, what do I lose? I mean, it is, again, uh -huh. what battles do you want to do, right? I mean, and I certainly, I do navigate that. There are tremendous prejudices are still and tremendous stigmatization against addiction and its treatments. And so my job is how within this environment can we continue doing the work to minimize actually negative effects. Now you're bringing something because of course I think about these things. I mean, sort of actually in terms of uh, the Europeans have been using uh, high doses of morphine to treat people that actually are not responding to other treatments of heroin. And those, we've looked into that and one of the reasons why it was not it did not make sense for us at that time, definitively on the basis of the analysis, to bring that as a treatment that could be tested in the United States. It was much more consuming in, in resources to set up those injection sites. And also the other problem with it is that patients were developing arrhythmias with these high doses of heroin, so they were not so benign. And as it relates to um, safe injection sites, I mean, we've been not directly funding the research on the safe injection sites, but we've been funding the uh, researchers that are doing that work to understand downstream how these support systems as a community can help people, for example, engage in treatment, how they can prevent them from getting infected from HIV, and how they can prevent them from overdosing and dying. Mm-hmm. But let me just ask you, I mean, just take the example of the heroin maintenance thing. You know, back actually before your time in the late 90s, I pulled together a group of researchers from the U.S. and Canada and the Europeans who were all interested in getting trials going on in North America. We called it NAOMI, the North American Opiate Medication Initiative. And what happened was that the Canadian leg took off and they actually did it and they now have it in many cities in Canada. And you now see it in many countries in Europe. And it is proving overwhelmingly successful. It's not perfect. As you said, there are some problems resulting, but it's reduced 
crime, reduce overdose, reduce problems of addiction, all this sort of stuff. But in the U.S., what happened was the researchers said, Ethan, we're never going to be able to get the funding. And even more recently, the last meeting I had organized before I left Drug Policy Lines four years ago was a meeting to bring together a younger generation of researchers. And people are saying, well, why can't we at least give it a shot here? Or even if we don't use heroin, pharmaceutical heroin, why not use hydromorphone, you know, Dilaudid, right? A drug that's given out in American hospitals to hundreds of thousands of people. We know from controlled double-blind studies that long-term heroin addicts can't tell the difference between Dilaudid, hydromorphone, and heroin. And then the public value benefit, which, I mean, part of what happened in Europe was they started doing these things, and it helped transform people's understanding of heroin and addiction. It humanized it. Rather than people being these junkies chasing this dirty drug, people began to realize that the drug itself was not as dangerous, and it was more the fact that it was illegal. So it would seem that some allocation of NIDA's resource to something like this would be hugely advantageous. And I know when I've talked to mayors and police chiefs around the country, they said, hey, as a research study, sure, we won't object to it. Why not make that a priority, especially given the issues with fentanyl now and so many people dying? Well, you know, what has made a gigantic difference and the data is out there, I mean, because this helps a very restricted number of people, but what has made a, a, a magnificent difference in terms of over those mortalities and outcomes is what France has done with buprenorphine. So if we have alternative medications that actually are safer and uh, can be deployed and we're not doing that because the insurance companies are not willing to reimburse, my focus is going to be on how can I affect practices that are likely to have a larger impact. And again, it's the issue of when you don't have all of the resources of the world you have to strategize which are the ones that are going to have the largest impact. And if you just look at the data in the United States, the majority of people that are on treatment for opioid use disorder are on buprenorphine. And so right now, for example, one of our priorities is to actually uh, expand uh, our basically knowledge base on clinical trials for the use of buprenorphine on people that are being exposed to fentanyl for which there is no clear call evidence about how to properly treat them, what doses to use, uh, why not use extended formulations, how to initiate them in buprenorphine, and also the sustainability of these practices in terms of costs. So as CIS, mm -hmm. as you know, there's not enough money to be put into the treatment of people with substance use disorder. So trying to come up with models that will ensure that the treatment will be provided is also a key component. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When I was calling around, one person who sang your praises said that you had been very supportive of expanding the access to methadone and buprenorphine behind bars, right? And you've been a big advocate of that. I remember 10, 15 years ago, Drug Policy Alliance, we would be organizing side sessions at the annual meetings of the American Correctional Association. And it was just incredibly difficult to get correctional officials to come along with this. And when I asked my friend what was most significant about that, he said, you know, what we found was that people, they appreciate the opportunities. You just figure out what worked for them. For some, buprenorphine worked better than methadone. For others, methadone worked better. For some, naltrexone was the preferred one. You know, I mean, for our listeners, the first two of those drugs are basically sort of agonists. And there's like giving, uh, say, a nicotine patch to a cigarette addict. And naltrexone is an antagonist, which, you know, blocks the feeling of these drugs. But it seems like just when we're dealing with depression, we try different antidepressants. When we're try- dealing with pain management, we ideally are trying different opioids to see what will work better. It does seem that when it comes to dealing with heroin addiction and other illicit drug opioid addiction, we should be making as many options available as possible. I mean, it, I mean you basically agree with that, right? 100% agree. And I use the same analogy and says how many antidepressants we have, how many uh, uh, antibiotics we have. And we are the only condition for which that we have three. That's enough. In many ways, and I, I perhaps shouldn't use this word, we've been very... Um, constrained in many ways by the need to actually document that the medications and the treatment are producing abstinence. And we've been ignoring that certain treatments, while not producing abstinence, will improve the quality of life of people and protect them. And so we've been trying to have a dialogue, and we've had a dialogue with the FDA. This is the outcomes that they require to change those outcomes so that we can allow for treatments that, while not producing abstinence, are going to be beneficial for the patients. They are willing for us to uh, consider this if we can provide them evidence that this is meaningful. So we're funding researchers to show this. And so now there is data Mm -hmm. that indicates, for example, that buprenorphine or methadone or other medications, even if they don't produce abstinence, they reduce the negative outcomes with HIV. They improve uh, retention in antiretroviral therapy. They decrease the likelihood of being incarcerated. So these are meaningful consequences to the person. So we are, Mm -hmm. again, negotiating towards also discussing possible medications that we may have tested in the past that were found non-efficacious because the outcomes was impossible to to reach, complete abstinence. Mm -hmm. So a very, very difficult bar to achieve. And I think it is different uh, from what we demand for antidepressants or for an analgesic. You don't demand that the pain be gone completely. You demand a 15% reduction. I mean, so 
we are, this has made the development of medications much harder. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you're essentially saying that dealing with this sort of 12-step abstinence-only ideology has a real challenge for you, that it really gets in the way of effective drug treatment and changing policies. Is that fair to say? Well, what I, I mean, I'm not so categorical in my thinking. I mean, my perspective is recognizing that there is a diversity of people and for some individuals, the 12-step programs may be um, life-saving, but for many others, they are mm-hmm. not. And so in my perspective, I value the 12-step programs um, because I do recognize that they offer support for people and uh, have been able to help people recover. So why would I be critical of that? What I mm-hmm. am critical of is their categorical rejection by many of them of the use of medications for treatment of substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. I was actually speaking with um, a volunteer, a patient with an opioid use disorder who is on buprenorphine and who was very much in conflict because he wanted very much to be part of the 12-step program, but he didn't want to lie to them that he actually was taking buprenorphine and he didn't want to stop taking buprenorphine because he recognized that it helped him enormously. Why put uh, individuals that are already with tremendous challenges in a conflict to have to decide one versus the other? What does it tell us that both of them can improve? We do it for cancer, mm-hmm. we do it for HIV, we do it for everything. Why do we need to have one or the other? So Yeah, you remind me, I remember coming across a 12-step program being run out of Bellevue Hospital years ago, which was a 12-step program for people in methadone maintenance who felt discriminated against in normal 12-step programs, like the methodology, like the community there, but felt they couldn't do it. But now let me switch back to this thing. You know, part of the promise, supposedly, I think, of the focus on the brain and the way you've put the resources between the brain and addiction was the hope that new medications would come out for dealing with addiction. But if we look at the basics, right, methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone, and naloxone for dealing with overdose, all four of those drugs were patented between 50 and 70 or more years ago. And really nothing new really of significance has come along. I mean, part of what was interesting about the heroin hydromorphone stuff in Europe and some other innovations there was at least it was another thing that worked for people for whom methadone or buprenorphine was not working. But is there anything on the horizon, whether with opioids or whether in dealing with the stimulants? I think you, you're you out there saying the best thing we have is contingency management, a behavioral approach rather than pharmacological approach. Uh, is there anything promising on the horizon, the short horizon, for adding some other drug to this mix? Yeah, there is. And I I don't think that we should minimize behavioral therapeutic interventions because one of the things that the neuroscience uh, has enabled us to do is to understand how these behavioral interventions are affecting neurocircuits influenced by drugs. And so you can tailor then the intervention in such a way that it will maximize its efficacy. And in terms also the understanding of the neurocircuitry that is engaged in addiction has offered an opportunity to start to work with um, neuromodulation technologies For example, I think it was last year that the FDA approved the use of transcranial magnetic stimulation for the treatment of nicotine addiction. We are Mm -hmm. also taking advantage of the peripheral system, which impacts on the brain and in, in cortical regions, and it modifies our sensations. And that, in turn, has resulted on approval of a peripheral stimulation device for the treatment of uh, opioid withdrawal. I mean, the problem of developing medications, as you know, is it takes something like 12 years from the idea until it comes out. And the process, it requires an enormous amount of money. So what we do as an agency is try to engage industry, whether it's big or small industry, to buy into that product and develop it. Because 
it's like $2.5 billion to take a treatment into the clinic, which of course will completely kill our budget for two years. Well, let me ask you, so another category of drugs, the psychedelics. Psychedelics research was pretty amply funded in the 50s and 60s by the federal government. And then with all the counterculture stuff in Timothy Leary, it was basically obliterated in the U.S. and much of the world. And now it's beginning to come back. And I know, you know, my friend Rick Doblin, who heads the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, has raised tens of millions of dollars of philanthropic funds, but still there's been no government funding there at all. And now you have this issue of for-profit players coming in, as you're saying, it's sometimes needed for drug development. But I wonder, we'll be seeing something coming out of NIDA. I mean, I just saw that in late May, you know, your boss, Francis Collins, the head of National Health, said to Congress, really interesting stuff going on with psilocybin. And National Cancer Institute just hosted something on uh, psychedelics and end-of-life care, right? And I think National Institute of Mental Health, another one of your sister agencies, has been holding webinars, seminars about the psychedelics. So what about National Institute on Drug Abuse? I mean, I think I saw there was a couple things maybe about ketamine and addiction, but can we expect to see you beginning to fund stuff on psilocybin and treatment of addiction or even or pain or things like that? Is that on the horizon for the short term? I, I mean, it was an eye opener to uncover that ketamine uh, is actually has turned out to be an extremely useful intervention for treatment resistant depression. And it is a result of research that led to this really important advancement on the way that we treat people with depressive disorders. So yes, and, there ha and we have been funding research that is ongoing in ketamine for opioid treatment and also ketamine for pain also has potential. For PCP, if you look at the data, actually the evidence is strongest for um, po showing potential benefits for depression. And the strongest data on depression, I would say, is on individuals that suffer from cancer terminal illnesses, and they have pretty dramatically positive results that persist at, at eight mm -hmm. months. So, that is the area where um, there is probably the most ongoing treatment. There is a study, there's a couple of studies that have shown some benefit in nicotine addiction, but they were not blinded. So it's very difficult to actually know the potential signal. So we are open. They have to come up with a proposal that will be deemed meritorious. And um, we rely on review committees to evaluate uh, the likelihood of success and the data for addictions is, in terms of the evidence, is much more limited. But, but, but Nora, I mean, let me just press you because, I mean, obviously with psilocybin, there is research being privately funded that is showing great promise. We know with ayahuasca, lots of interesting things are emerging in terms of people processing not just trauma, but also times addiction. And, you know, there are people talking about the promise of psychedelics in the treatment of depression and things like this that could revolutionize the pharmacological, you know, treatment in some of these areas. I, I mean, I'll tell you, it wasn't long ago that a prominent researcher, who I think you know well, um, who had done research on other drugs, you know, cocaine, nicotine, and was getting interested in psychedelics. And he was hopeful of getting a National Institute of Drug Abuse funding for uh, research on psilocybin. And what he landed up doing was telling the organizers of a conference on psychedelics to disinvite me, because if he showed up at a conference where Ethan Nadelman was talking, that would show that psychedelics is all political and therefore he won't get funding. Now, I think he still hasn't gotten funding, but given the enthusiasm coming out and all of the intriguing research out there, why not go more strongly into this area now? I mean, is there a fear of the political fallout or what? No, I don't think that there is a per se a fear of the political fallout. I think that we are seeing, I mean, MDMA is, is an addictive drug. 
Psilocybin is not an addictive drug, and yet ketamine is being utilized in a way that is safe for the treatment of people with depression. So the notion of when you get proposals, you are competing with other grants in terms of likelihood of success in the proposal that you have and li- likelihood of implementation. So they are the review process is important, and you cannot just come in and with an idea without showing, as you know, for the grants. Most of the grant mechanisms requires that you do provide a background that supports the likelihood that you will be successful. And the reason why, why this is done is, is, again, limitation of resources. So uh, you have to take risks, but you want to take risks that are more likely to be successful. So, Nora, let me ask you, um, with the MDMA, right? I mean, MDMA has seemed not to spend a lot of money trying to establish the neurotoxicity of MDMA. And I know, remember, there was this sort of embarrassing thing that happened. Not It was after you, I think, before you came in, right, where NIDA had given a big grant to a researcher at Hopkins, George Riccardi, um, who came out with this big study in science saying that all these monkeys had died from MDMA. And then it turned out, lo and behold, he'd given them large doses of amphetamine. And people were highly suspicious of the results even before or it got published in science. And the day that article came out, your predecessor, Alan Lester, said, gotcha, using MDMA is like playing Russian roulette, which was an incredibly irresponsible thing for a former head of NIDA and head of the American Academy of Arts and Science to say, now you have the FDA, right, is about to proceed. It's in phase three trials with doing MDMA for treating PTSD, right? They've established the safety margins, right? Are you concerned? I mean, given all that's happened last 15, 20 years and with MDMA going through all these incredible incredibly expensive, long trials, and now the possible expansion of MDMA to treat PTSD. Do you have any concerns about that, or are you enthusiastic about this development? I uh, Basically, I support science that can help bring new treatments. I actually was one of the ones that was very skeptical when the paper came up in science, because we have been looking into the effects of drugs in the brain, and, 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 and also the Europeans have a long history of actually studying the effects of ecstasy. And um, no one has reported anything like that. And overall, the issue with, with ecstasy has, has had more to do, and I guess everybody is concerned, the potential of uh, young people using it in situations where they are very crowded and that can result in hyperthermia, mm-hmm. where there have been some deaths associated with it. If, uh, again, and is this the history, I mean, we've learned, we need to learn from what, what the evidence is showing us. If we can use ketamine, for the treatment of severe depression in a way that is safe. This is an example of really that we can do, we can use drugs that we thought were dangerous and use them in ways that are therapeutic. In fact, we use fentanyl extensively for surgical procedures and it's a very valuable drug. So we cannot demonize fentanyl because the illicit drug is being marketed in the streets because fentanyl also has a very valuable uh, application in medicine and can mm-hmm. be life savings. And the same thing with prescription opioids. And this is something that I've also been very vocal about. Mm-hmm. And so, but again, we polarize everything. It's either good or bad. And I, and it is hard yeah. because, you know, my brain is, why can't we not have this and that? These two things are correct. We are over-prescribing, but at the same time, we are restricting it to people that need it. They are not exclusive. You know, one thing that worries me, right, you know, I oftentimes would describe the war on drugs as being justified in terms of being one great big child protection act. And when you would say to politicians, why can't we legalize marijuana for medical purposes? And they go, what about the kids? Or I remember, what about needle exchange? And the former governor of New Jersey, Christy Whitman or others would say, what about the kids? And you always go, what about the kids? What about the kids? What about the kids? And what we hear that now is on the issue of uh, nicotine and vape. Right. I mean, here you have a kind of breakthrough 
technological innovation that has the potential that's dramatically less dangerous. E-cigarettes and the heat not burn vaping devices are dramatically less dangerous than cigarettes. They're not safe, but dramatically less dangerous. And then we see the rapid uptake of juuling among kids a few years ago. And now what it seems is like this massive miseducation campaign of which the U.S. government, including the Center for Disease Control, has been a, an ample part. I mean, you have now a majority of Americans believing that e-cigarettes are as or more dangerous than combustible cigarettes. You have a majority of Americans and even certain fields of medicine believing that nicotine is what causes cancer rather than nicotine being the hook that addicts people to cigarettes. You have people believing that that whole E-Valley syndrome where people were landing up in the hospital was about nicotine e-cigarettes, whereas we know now, and in fact, there was good reason to believe in the beginning, it was about illegally produced tainted THC cartridges. So the question I'm asking you is, what is the responsibility? What is your obligation as the head of NIDA to make sure that these massive public misperceptions get corrected. This is going to be my last answer because I do have to run to another meeting, but it does, I mean, I cannot not, not respond to this extremely important question because it's another example about how we swing back and forth. And, and the reality is that, yes, uh, vaping of nicotine can result in people that are naive to become addicted very rapidly and can actually lead to toxicity because in the cartridges you can actually concentrate high doses of nicotine that you would never be able to smoke with combustible. On the other hand, as you say, electronic cigarettes offer an alternative delivery for nicotine on people that cannot stop smoking. And in the process, the European data has shown that actually there are benefits. So one of the things that we have been very interested in doing is funding research that will document benefits of the use of the electronic cigarettes on, for nicotine cessation or for alternatives for treatment. So um, there is truth on both of those things. I mean, yeah, although I am impressed by the evidence coming from Ken Warner, many other people pointing out that the, from a public health perspective, the net benefit for smokers of switching so exceeds any potential risk to young people from vaping. And that the evidence of kids starting to vape and moving into cigarettes, unless they were already engaging with combustibles per, beforehand, is so low that you have an overwhelming case for a responsible public health policy. That I wish I could devices. sort of say yes. It's so simple. I think that I, I believe no, I'm that there is value. I'm not saying it's value. simple. I'm saying it's a balancing. I see the yeah. other side of of the coin, and I actually because I know that data on both sides. But but yes, Nathan, so I. I think it, we are actually ultimately trying to understand. I mean, a very specific question that, believe it or not, there's very little work. How does nicotine exposure during brain development influence the trajectories? I mean, what are its effects? Yeah. And as you know, one of the things that nicotine is associated with, once you've been taking it and you stop, you have greater likelihood of depressive symptoms, of anxiety. So I have a fascination for nicotine. It's an, uh, another extremely interesting compound, but it can be very addictive. Okay, my last, my very last question here. Here you've been supporting decriminalization, supporting a public health approach, opposing the drug war. Can you envision in your life post-NIDA um, uh, joining up with drug policy reform organizations to push for policies that are more grounded in public health and human rights and harm reduction and opposing the punitive prohibitionist policies? If they are effective, yes. Great. Okay. I don't just like to think about problems. I like to I, solve them. Uh, I agree. We're in the same milk that way. Listen, Nora, thank you ever so much for taking the time uh, to do this. I really appreciate it. It was a very highly engaging conversation, and I wish you the best of luck under this current administration. Thanks very much, guys. Hasta la vista. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Edelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. 
The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Abhivit Bar Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Listen in next time for my conversation with Tim Ferriss, the investor and productivity guru who's been funding research on psychedelics and who also has a fair number of experiences to share himself. There's a bunch of college kids eating handfuls of mushrooms, no measurement involved, to see what would happen. Nonetheless, I noticed after these experiences, which I did once a year for a number of years, that there was an antidepressant afterglow optimism that lasted for several months. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.